Podcast One Production. Welcome to Brand New World, a podcast series designed for marketers. Hi, I'm Russell Howcroft, Chief Creative Officer at PwC Australia, and I, along with Southern Cross Stereo, have a passion for building brands and businesses. The COVID-19 global pandemic has created insane disruption across the world, none more so than in the marketing industry. We're being forced to find new ways to build brands and communicate to our customers as their behaviour changes to adapt to what we're calling the new normal. This podcast series will help you find opportunity amongst the chaos. Throughout the series, we'll talk to experts in the industry about how they're adapting to a brand new world. As the host, my role will be to tease out the insights, creativity and lessons that will help us all get through this together and most importantly, keep your brand and business in good stead for the future. The good news is we're not all screwed. There is opportunity. In this episode, we're discussing how to build a strong brand that will not just endure this crisis, but prosper. My guest today is Mark Ritson. Mark has a PhD in marketing and has spent 25 years working as a marketing professor in universities around the world. For 13 years, Mark worked as the in-house professor for LVMH, the world's largest luxury group with brands like Louis Vuitton, Dom Perignon and Hennessy. When he's not thinking and writing about marketing, he's picking fights with people on Twitter. He's dialing in from Tassie. G'day, Mark. G'day, Russell. How are you? Hello from Tassie. Now, I wanted to talk to you, Mark, a little bit about you. Um, the truth is you are, you're famous. You're famous certainly in the world of marketing, brand and advertising. Um, and and yet I'm not sure that there's a really solid understanding of what you've done in the past. So I, I'm going to take this as an opportunity just to talk to you a little about where you've come from. So yes, you're in Tassie now, but you don't sound like a Taswegian. So just give us a bit of a, bit of a CV. Go for it. Well, I'm obviously a POM. Um, I grew up in the Lake District in the far north of, of England. And um, I'm very strange. In the 80s, I went off and studied marketing, which back then wasn't the done thing. Um, did a couple of years working and then went back and did my PhD in marketing. It was always the thing I was interested in. And all this was in the UK. And then I went off on a scholarship to, to America and essentially spent most of the 90s in America. Uh, Wharton do my postdoc. And then I got a job as a junior as an assistant professor in Minnesota. And then after Minnesota, um, came back to London Business School right at the start of the North, actually at the end of the end of 1999. And until then, I was a very bog standard theoretical professor with a PhD and all of those flowery things. And really at London Business School, things changed because we were, two things happened. London Business School at the time was still very applied. So they encouraged you to work with companies as part of their uh, operations. It was a kind of an independent business school. And we were right in the middle of the action, you know, and it was a top 10 ranked school. And I decided to focus on brand as my area of expertise. So, and there weren't many guys doing that back then. And again, it's not that long ago. It's only 20 years ago. But I really decided that that was the thing I was going to focus on. One thing led to another. And before you knew it, early part of the 21st century, I was really starting to crank it with large companies doing big branding projects. And that's really how it got going. And at some point, LVMH grabbed me out of Paris and they needed a branding uh, expert, and I got in there and spent. You know, I worked for the CEOs of the at that, that point about fifty big brands on big brand projects, and so 
I got, I think, up until about now, about 20 years of really good blue chip brand experience working with smarter people than me on really big projects that we didn't quite get right. But as you know, in your consulting role, that's the secret. It's not intelligence. It's being with people smarter than you, working on stuff and being able to see whether it works or not. And so I amassed a massive amount of experience in a short amount of time uh, in you know on a global level and and that was what I've been leveraging ever since and 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 I guess that's been my main job my main source of income has been working on brand projects and tell me brand Ritson and this this is a serious question brand Ritson at which point in time did you realize that building one's own brand was going to contribute to success I, I can tell you the exact moment because I'm always a little bit queasy about the personal branding stuff it te- it very quickly turns into bullshit but I'd given a talk at London Business School in 2004 to the alumni of London Business School. And at the time, I was a relatively well-regarded junior professor at LBS. And I was kind of the support act for a much more famous professor who will remain nameless, I think, for his, for his own safety, a very famous strategy professor. And he was so famous, I wanted to be on the ticket with him. They had about 500 alums come into this hall to hear me talk about branding and then him talk about, oh, fuck, it's, he's, it's called Gary Hamill. He's a super yeah. famous strategy prof. And Gary was part-time at London Business School and, and, and part-time at Harvard. And so I worked my ass off for about, I don't know, four or five solid days to put together a really great talk about brands, brand equity, and then, so I delivered this talk without much impact. And then Gary, I waited for Gary to turn up to do his spiel on the stage. And he, he wasn't there. And instead, this giant screen came down. And Gary Hamill was broadcasting live from his pad in California. And I, I don't know how much of this is now true. It's nearly 20 years ago. But I seem to remember he was buttering his toast at the breakfast bar of his <laughs> million-dollar apartment in a, in a very yeah. nice sort of casual outfit with the, with the waves of the Pacific crashing behind him. And I thought, you know, what the fuck is this? You know, it was like, I'm here, and this dude's just phoning it in, literally, from California, you know? But I looked at the audience's faces. It was like a Lady Gaga concert. So I just delivered all this original material in person, and this dude was just doing his usual shtick from his breakfast bar in California. You know, he literally was saying things like, well, what is strategy? Well, what is strategy? You know, butter's toast. And I thought it was a disgrace. So I went immediately afterwards. We had a pub called the Windsor Castle next to the school where I met my wife. And so I went to the Windsor and, and, and did what I do when I have to work things out. I ordered a pint of Guinness, and I sat there steaming. And I'm like, Whoa! and then I thought, hang on a minute. What you've just seen is what you're, you're supposed to be a professor of branding. You're getting paid to deliver a talk about brands. And no one even, if I'd have stood outside at the end, no one would have recognized me when they filed out the door. Like I had zero impact, right? And it was a good talk. I'm getting paid to deliver a, a session on brands. And Gary Hamill's being paid to be Gary Hamill. And I want to be in that place because that looks a lot easier and better than having to scramble each time. And it was at that point I thought, you know what, here we go. We're going we're gonna to have to focus a little bit. And I don't believe you can change. Uh, when we work on brands, Russell, we, we are happy to change the gorilla to, to be closer to what the customer wants sometimes. 
The difference with personal branding is I think if you do that, you end up being a phony. And there's plenty of people in our industry we know who are projecting something they're not in order to, you know, to be something attractive. I never countenanced that, but I thought there's a way of being yourself here that you shouldn't change yourself, but you should be more focused on doing it your way. And that that's the moment where I started to, I think, start to be certainly less generic about how I was doing things. The reason why I wanted to talk about Brand Ritson is because Brand Ritson is absolutely a brand like any other brand and requires management and requires, well, depends on how deep you want to think about these things. But the more you think about it, the more you then think about execution, the more obviously you think about generating greater income or greater profitability um, it, it plays a role just like any other brand. Yep. So I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about, okay, so brand written in a time like this. Yes, we can advise LVMH or we can advise a bank, we can advise anyone, but I am now thinking about the advice that you give yourself during a COVID time. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I think two things. I'm a huge believer in salience over everything. Uh, and I've, you know, I give Byron Sharp and Ehrenberg Bass a lot of shit for being many things, but they have called a number of things brilliantly against the dominant uh, perspective of, of the, the mainstream, myself included. And I think the most powerful thing they've they've really pushed that I am totally sold on these days is the idea that coming to mind is more important than anything else. First, they must know that it's me. Now, on the back of that, I differ from Ehrenberg Bass because I think what you stand for does have a big impact and you can be differentiated. But if you had to put a simple number on it, 80% of branding is being there and being noticed. So the first rule for me as a personal brand, if we want to call it that, is to keep the output uh, the same. You've learned this much earlier than I have. And if people come after you and say you're a tosser, fantastic, fantastic. I learned that way earlier than you. <laughs> so, you know, there is such a thing as bad publicity. You know, the cliche isn't quite true. There are special conditions where it does hurt you. With those special conditions to one side, yeah, the first lesson in, in the COVID crisis is stay out there because many brands right now have pulled back. And that's a huge mistake because now more than ever, you need to get on it. And then the second thing for me was adjust my stuff quickly so that, you know, there's no point talking about brands if we don't talk about COVID because that's literally everything. And I was lucky. I got called by John Miles at the um, Australian uh, Marketing Association um, very early on or in the crisis to say, could we do something for Kiwi marketers? And then Andrea Martins called me from ADMA. And so we quickly turned around and did these two sessions, which are working from home boot camps where for marketers who are stuck at home, we're running 12 weeks of training. I mean, almost a not-for-profit price. They're making a little bit of money, but it was our attempt to keep marketers busy. And and that's been, to be honest, that's been a pain in the ass, but it's been super rewarding. We have about 2,000 people right now going through a pretty advanced training program at home. So it was kind of be out there, do stuff that reflects the COVID crisis um, and, and get on with it. You know what I mean? You, you catch the people that haven't got an ability to think because for the first three weeks of COVID, they were still trotting out the same nonsense 
on social media. And clearly our world changed and we had to talk about that. So I think they were the two guidelines. Get out there and make it relevant to the crisis. Almost the critical number um, early days of, of my training was the notion of spontaneous brand awareness. Yep. It strikes me that this isn't a number which is on the sort of the top of the the top of the pops on the on the on the dashboard of the CEO. I would have thought that was a pretty critical number. Yeah, you're right. Um and I'd go even higher. So first of all, yeah. So spontaneous awareness is 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 a big 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 measure. But if you follow that salience literature, there's a bigger measure even than that, which is do I come to mind in buying situations? So the criticism of any awareness score is that it's cued by the category, yeah? So if you remember the corona beer discussion, people were saying that, you know, corona is going to struggle here because unfortunately it has the same, you know, name as, as coronavirus. And they, there was even some research that said when we ask people, when you think about coronavirus, which brands come to mind? Corona. And how do you feel about Corona? Oh, I, I think it, I feel the beer might has negative associations. That got widely spread. And I wrote a very helpful comment, column saying that was rubbish, that sales of Corona would be up significantly because of this salience point. And the salience point is we don't cue people in the real world with when you think about the Corona crisis, which brands come to mind. You cue them with what do you want to drink? Yeah. What are you buying? The point is that buying situation for many people right now is Corona is obviously top of mind. So it's almost beyond top of mind, which is a very abstract cue. You know, when you think about banks, which banks come to mind? An even better question is when you think about your next home, which brands come to mind? So you're almost situationally cueing it. You know, we hired a guy many, many, many years ago. Uh, I used to work with British Airways and we hired a guy from EasyJet and EasyJet um, had worked this out a, a lot earlier than everyone else. And, they, and they, the guy was joking about BA measuring top of mind awareness and saying, you guys are obsessed with the question, when you think about airlines, which brand comes to mind? I mean, I said to him, well, what's wrong with that? You know, And he said, our question is, to one of our segments that happens to be 18 to 25-year-olds that live more than 100 miles from their parents, when you think about going to see your parents for the weekend, which brand's are in there. See what I mean? It's a very subtle shift. Yeah. It gets to those category entry points and it gets that unaided awareness that we that is so important. And you're absolutely right. It, it, everyone misses it. Do you come to mind? Your great talent, Russell, as you are, I'm certain aware of is, when you think about marketing and media, Howcroft comes to mind, right? Are you overexposed? No, such a thing is not possible. It is not possible. Do you know what I mean? You cannot. Thanks for saying that. (laughs) But but you know what I mean? Your value, your equity. I mean, yes, you do a fantastic job as well. Don't get me wrong. But your main talent and your main equity, like most of us is, you come to mind. That's 70% of the game is just going, when I think about marketing and media, well, there's Russell Howcroft, of course, right? People forget that because when they work for companies, they think their brand is top of mind for the consumer as much as it is for the company. And they think it's some giant thing. It's minuscule for most people. So it's uh, it's bigger than salience. It's about category entry points. So therefore yep. asking the right question about a given buying moment and therefore what brands come to mind. I yep. love that. I think that's awesome. The other thing which I always thought was interesting was ultimately the number that matters is the price that the consumer is prepared to pay. And yet I think what we don't do is we don't, in a marketing context, 
talk about that ultimately it's about price and price is all around both the perceived equity of a product and the actual delivery of of that product but it also does involve distribution yep it does involve the packaging uh, it does involve of course whether there's any benefit or not and in a way i feel like what we've done with marketing is we've just turned it into communication spot on yeah, absolutely right. I mean, there's data just come out, right? Uh, Christine Mormon's a very good professor in the United States. She teaches at Duke. She does a CMO uh, survey about once a year of American CMOs, the top ones. And what she's showing is she asks those CMOs, which of the from a list of about 25 things, which of these things is your marketing department leading on? And which is it not leading on? And what you see is absolutely right. Every one of the communication elements is going up and up and up. Things like price, product development, corporate strategy, targeting are going down and down and down and down. So marketers are losing the grip on the other uh, tactical and strategic elements. You know, in 1960, it's almost exactly 60 years um, when, uh, when they invented the four Ps. It, it really was what marketers did back then. We really did product place distribution, promotional comms, and then we did the price. And what we've seen, particularly in the last 25 years, is the erosion of that, and we are pretty much now the comms department. If you go to a good conference, most people are talking about comms. And it, it, my calculation is it's about 8% of marketing when you actually understand the full beast. You know? Yeah. So this, this is the challenge, isn't it? Maybe it's a battle lost, perhaps. It's hard to move up that food chain and be in charge of distribution, be in charge of of the product itself, being in charge of NPD. It shouldn't be hard, but it does appear to have been a, a battle lost. Yeah, and, and it's to the cost of companies. If you just take pricing, the thing that happens when you don't have marketers involved in the pricing decision is we always price low. McKinsey did a great study. About 80 to 90% of pricing when it's done wrong is underpricing. So we leave a ton of money on the table. And that's because no one's measuring the customer perceptions of value along with all the cost-based stuff and the competitor stuff to give us that right perspective. And the big, I'm not a big pricing expert to say the least. The big wins of my consulting career have mostly been on price because we can show the immediate value of what we've done in, in the millions of dollars by getting price right, by using a bit of data, you know? And, and there's yeah. simple tools we can use to do it. Ultimately, the purpose of brand is to get the price that you wish to charge. It's one of the biggest advantages, right? Branding creates price insensitivity. Now, but your point's great as long as you factor in something else that you haven't mentioned yet, which is I can have a strong brand, I can have an attracted customer, but I must have a marketer who is prepared to, to, to capture that value and hold the line on price. And in Australia, we don't have those people. We have them in the minority. Most Australian marketers want to drop their pants on price almost as soon as the product's available. It's probably one of the great difficulties of my life in Australia is trying to explain of all the strengths of Australian business people why they cannot hold the line on price. It is, uh, it is a mystery to me. How do you think a petrol station would go if they took that pricing tree off the uh, the corner of the... <laughs> How do you reckon they go? <laughs> Mind-boggling stuff. Do you know what I mean? Hey, I'll tell you, my, be my best ever story on this, you'll like this one. So my favourite movie is a movie called Local Hero, right, which is an old movie, yeah. great movie, right? So Local Hero was made by a guy called uh, David Putnam, who went on to win an Oscar for Chariots of Fire, right? And David Putnam's a real good, scratchy British film producer, right? 
And they made bugger all money for Local Hero. Bill Forsyth, who wrote it, it's like a, you know, a cheap and cheerful Scotsman. But they really wanted Burt Lancaster to play Felix Happer, who's like the American billionaire in the movie, right? So David Putnam rings him up and says, here, Bert, I want you to do, uh, I want you to be in this movie. We just need five days in Scotland. And Bert Lancaster says, yeah, I'd love to do that. It's a million dollars. And Putnam goes, we, we haven't got a million dollars for the whole film, Bert. Never mind for you. And he says, I'm sorry, that's it then, you know. And he rings him 12 times over the stretch of about 14 months. And every time he rings him, Lancaster says, oh, I'd love to do that. I saw the script. I love the script, David. Love it, love it. It's going to cost you a million dollars. So finally, Putnam raises the million dollars and says to Burt Lancaster, we've got the million dollars. And Burt Lancaster says, great, I'm going to make the movie with you. The de- this is all true. The day after Lancaster signs the contract to star in the movie, ABC in the US rings up David Putnam and says, are you making a movie in Scotland? And Putnam goes, yeah, we are. It's, it's going to shoot next year. Have you got Burt Lancaster in it? And Putnam goes, yeah. And ABC go, we'll give you a million dollars for the TV rights in America. And Burt Lancaster should be every Australian marketer's hero because he knows his value, yeah? He's able to to hold out. Some sales have to be resisted in order for us to make a decent profit. So what what we know about the reduction of ad spend during times like this is we we know it to be true. The reduction in investment in in brand, we know to be true. There are case studies after case studies after case studies. And yet, in the main, the corporate, the brand owner, the business behaves as they always behave and they cut the budget. Why? Well, I mean, it comes down to a couple of things. Uh, we don't really respect history. So we know nothing about COVID. I mean, it's a, it, the unprecedented word, the cliche of saying unprecedented is absolutely true in this case. We have nothing to compare it to. My point has been, though, we know a hell of a lot about recessions because we've been studying them for a century. And in that sense, we, you know, we know a lot about how you should behave. And the short answer is you should try as much as you can to maintain ad spend in a recession because as others pull back or go out of business, your voice and your relative share of voice increases and you will get market share gains during the recession, which you'll keep as times improve. And that isn't my take on it, my hot take on it. I could give you literally a hundred thousand different instances, and I can give you almost none of the counter, right? So we know now, this to be true. We know this to be absolutely true. So why isn't it happening? Well, first, there are companies out there that just don't have the liquidity, right? So they're pulling back on everything. But again, if you look at recessionary strategy, Nitin Noria, the dean of Harvard Business School, talks about being Janus-faced, two-faced, in the sense that you have to cut some stuff in order to protect other stuff. And one of the things that you should be protecting is your, your ad spend. The other problem we've got, other than ignoring history... And ignoring this, I mean, you know, most of us want to, in marketing want to focus on the future and virtual reality and not on what's happened in the past. The other problem we've got is budgets are set by the finance department. Um, around, again, the number varies, but around about 90% of Australian companies set their marketing budgets in the most ludicrous way. You could explain it to a 10-year-old and he or she would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Let's pause and enjoy this. You ready, Russell? Let's pause and enjoy it. And I'm 90% again is not an overstatement. The finance director looks at the revenues that were generated last year. He or she then 
extrapolates them with a compound annual growth rate. Let's say we're growing at 10%. We did our you know, $10 million revenue last year. We'll do 11 million this year. He or she then applies an advertising to sales ratio. You know, the average in, in business is about 10%, right? So I expect to do $11 million next year. We spend 10% of our revenues on advertising and marketing. Therefore, you're going to get $1.1 million for your ad budget. That's, I've just described 90% of the budgeting in Australia, right? Now, pause yeah. and think about that for a minute as a lunatic approach. If I already know how much money I'm going to make next year, what's the fucking point of doing any fucking marketing at all, first of all, right? I've already booked the number. Every yeah. marketer is an afterthought or a cost. And second, where does that 10% number come from? You know, it comes from out of the ass, unfortunately, of the finance director, right? So the, the longer answer to your question is when that's how budgets are set, when times are good, you can imagine what's going on right now, which is the finance director goes, well, there's no, uh, there's no real uh, revenues planned for the next few months. Um, none of our competitors are spending either. I think we should just cut the, the, the marketing budget completely. And of course, what they're missing is the long-term value of comms. A decent long-term brand building communications, which is normally 50, 60% of it, takes two years to kick in. So the idea you would pull it right now means that when we do start to pick up again, even into a recession, you're going to have to try and start the car cold. You know, as I've said to my clients, and it is a hard battle, if you're planning on spending any money in 2021, right, calendar year, Let's say you've got a five or $10 million ad budget planned for next year. For God's sake, take 10% of it now and run it through the recession because the 10 now and 90 next year will add up to a much greater impact than 100 next year. And of course, one of the issues is that um, media expenditure invariably is a variable expense. So how do you get media in the cost of goods sold would be uh, a smart move. And yet that, of course, has proven to be very difficult to, to make happen. We need to change the, um, the accounting standards, Mark. We do, mate. And it's, it's an area where unless we have conversations between marketers and finance people, you know, let's not blame the CFO and the finance team. In my experience, these are very reasonable men and women that have just put up with such nonsense from marketers. You know, why are we setting budgets that way? Because let's be honest, most marketers can't put together a proper budget and propose it to the finance team before the numbers have to be calculated. And so they wait for their crumbs from the table. So I, I do think the only, the only counter to all of this is I don't want to sound like I'm critiquing finance teams. They do it because the marketing teams aren't capable. And, and that's a key point as well. So I have a view that the most damaging quote in the history of business is 50% of my ad budget's wasted. I just don't know which 50%. Well, it's true because if, if I met a marketer who said that, I'd say you're an incompetent asshole. Do you know what I mean? And when you see it in conferences, you go, you know, they say it like it's acceptable. I totally agree with you, Russell. It's like if you heard that in a, in a boardroom, the finance guy would, like, would be like, who the fuck is this? You need to be fired for gross incompetence. The other thing that it's done is that it's convinced the world that if you're spending a million, it should be 500,000. <laughs> if you're spending 10, it should be five. You're always sandbagging to everyone else's point of view, right? You know what I mean? Exactly. And so the 10 now becomes five during the course of a recession. And then, of course, the five will become two and a half. And before you know it, it's, you know, nothing. It's so true. And yet that quote gets trotted out more than any other. It gets trotted out in order to go find the wastage. There is an element to it, which, of course, is the notion of perceived value, getting back to price, there is a qualitative element to that. 
that's worth zooming in on. Don't forget the signaling effect of advertising. Signaling is the oldest theory of advertising, the peacock's tail. Whatever you put inside a full-page ad, the fact that you've taken out a full-page ad on a regular basis is probably the biggest part of the communications, right? That God, these guys are big boys. Look, they've got an ad in the, in the, in the Sydney Morning Herald. So we've yeah. got to remember that, right, that signaling is, is, is a huge part of it, and the ad itself, you know, is the secondary effect. What about the moment in time we've got right now? You've got increased audience. Uh, audiences are growing everywhere, all media. And, of course, the price of media is going the other way. Yep. We know this. We know it's – look, this is part of the recessionary playbook for 100 years, right? So it couldn't – and I don't want to sound facetious about it because it's a tough time for business and it's a worse time for people that are ill. But in some ways it couldn't be a better, more prospicious time for brand building because exactly to your point, your competitors are pulling back. So you're, let's say you spend five million bucks a year in marketing and advertising. Normally, that has a relationship. Your share of voice has a relationship with share of market, right? And they're, they're pretty much one-to-one correlated if you look at the historical data. If you're spending $5 million and let's say that's a 5% share of voice, it's roughly going to give you a 5% share of market if that's the size of the market. Suddenly, your competitors pull back or go out of business. And that five million bucks that was 5% share of voice becomes 10 that's going to eventually lead to a 10% share of market. Now, your point is also that 5 million bucks is buying you a lot more advertising than it used to. So it's equating not just to 10%, but maybe to 12 or 15 or 20%. And as you begin to add those factors together, what you realize is this is a time for long-term brand building, albeit a very difficult time for the economy. If you've got the money and if you have the knowledge and if you've got the bravery to do it, there is a play here. And by the way, there's tons of case studies. I mean, P&G have been doing this for a century. If you compare P&G and Coke right now, there's a fascinating contrast. Coca-Cola, a declining force, has pulled back its marketing investments. P&G has gone, actually, we're doing pretty good in durables, and we're going to double. They're not saying it, but I'm pretty sure it's true. They're not just maintaining. They've increased ad spend. And those incremental groves in share, they'll get for the next 10 years. And they've done that for 100 years. The best example I can give you is Target, um, not in Australia, in the US. When we went in the GFC, Target actually cut back on a lot of things, but they increased their ad spend by 20% in 07 and 08, as everyone else was pulling back. And that preempted the greatest decade in that retailer's history. So there are brands out there that have worked it out, You know, that have gone, right, don't waste a good recession. Let's put the playbook into action. And as I say in my columns, if you can hang on to your marketing budget while those around you are losing theirs, you'll be a brand, you know. So tell me about you. Back to you. Mm. You're now, are we calling you a virtual professor? Is that what's happening? I don't know. I mean, I left Melbourne Business School at Christmas. I I run an online program called the Mini MBA in Marketing. Uh, We have right now, at at this point in time, I've got about 4,000 marketers studying with me around the world, all out of this studio and another one I have on the river. There's two things happening, right? It's it's obviously it's making a ton of money. Um, that's the first thing. What really finished me as a, as a university professor? My last semester was October last year at Melbourne Uni, and I had about what, 1,400 students doing brand with me on my mini MBA version, which is all you know 100% online. The contrast between these two classes—they're both equally good 30-year-old marketers was we were asking these 30-year-old marketers to drive into school every Saturday for 
8.30 a.m., sit there until 4.30 p.m. with 100 other students in an amphitheater, right? Which is pretty much a 16th century model of training, right? Meanwhile, I've got the same syllabus, same sort of students globally spread out across the world doing it on iPads whenever they want, in bed, in the car, blah, 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 blah. And the thing that killed me wasn't the convenience factor. It was that these guys were learning more. That's what broke me. And I didn't expect that was, oh, shit, my, my virtual class have taken so much more from the same content than my real class. It's time to accept this is the model, not just because it makes tons more money and it's tons more convenient for everyone, but it's better. So that's left me in a problem position, which is I did used to be a genuine professor, but I'm not anymore. I'm a virtual one in the sense that I'm doing it virtually and virtual in the sense that I'm no longer, you know, a full one. <laughs> I think that's the title I'm going to use, but I have no clue. It's an interesting time. You know, I don't know. I don't know what it's what it's called, what we're doing, but it's working, and that, I guess that's the main thing. Well, let's get in back to brands. So obviously what you're doing with Virtual Professor, cultural relevance, clearly the, <laughs> clearly it's hardcore cultural relevance, and this COVID time has just played straight into your into your new uh, your new venture. So all power to you, Mark, and of course there's not very many people who've got the salience of, of you. So congratulations on all the great work you've been doing. Uh, you're such an important voice around the world. Great to talk to you. Oh, mate, that, good to talk to you, mate. I really enjoyed it. We'll get a beer at some point back in the real world, eh? Our next conversation on Brand New World, I'll be talking to TBWA CEO, Kimberly Wells. Brand New World is a Podcast One Australia production. Produced by Dave Zwolenski and Matthew Dwyer. 